Heavenly Father, thank you that um, we can uh, come to your word and that you speak to us by your spirit through your word. And we thank you that all scripture is breathed out by you, uh, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, uh, that we might be equipped for every good work. And so we pray that as we uh, look at this, uh, your word together, uh, that your spirit would be uh, leading us. Uh, we pray that he will enable me to teach your word clearly and faithfully in his power. And we pray that he would work uh, in each one of our hearts, uh, drawing us to Christ um, and uh, enabling us to keep loving him and trusting him uh, and obeying him as our king. And so we commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we saw last week, uh, as we began our series on uh, First Chronicles, that 1 and 2 Chronicles are actually one book. You remember that? Uh, they're just two parts, because uh, they couldn't fit the whole thing on one scroll. Uh, and there are three sections, uh, main sections of the book of Chronicles, and that's coming up on the screen. Um, you'll see it there. It's not coming up on the screen. Okay. Um, Okay, we've got some PowerPoint problems. Never mind, don't worry. Uh, three main sections of the book of Chronicles. Uh, in chapter 1 to 9 uh, of uh, First Chronicles, uh, that's the genealogy, right? And then, uh, and we saw that last week, uh, Tim preached very well on that. It goes from Adam uh, down to uh, the Chronicles Day in 450 BC. The second part uh, gives us uh, a picture of ideal kingship, uh, where God's people are united under one king, and that's David in the second part of First Chronicles, and it's Solomon in the first part of Second Chronicles. And then in the third section, the chronicler tells us of the divisions between the kingdoms of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and he traces the kingdom of Judah from Solomon's son all the way to the exile and the command to return. All right, so now we are beginning the second section that takes up the rest of One Chronicles and the rest of this sermon series. Uh, and it's all about David. As we read it, we will find things that are actually very familiar, even if we haven't read Chronicles before. And that's because they come from 1 Samuel. But the writer doesn't just repeat 1 Samuel. In fact, he seems to assume we already have what kinds of information from 1 Samuel. Instead, he's picking and choosing uh, what he wants to take from 1 Samuel to make his point. Uh, for example, the writer doesn't give us David's backstory like we get in 1 Samuel. Right? He's not interested in how David got to be there and became king. He's just interested in David as king. Uh, there are lots of things he doesn't say, he doesn't assume, uh, sorry, he doesn't say he assumes uh, that we've got from Samuel. But he wants to emphasize other things instead. I'll show you some examples today. Uh, as we go along, I'll make brief reference to what I think he assumes we know from Samuel, but what I want us to really concentrate on is what we are told here in Chronicles, so we can specifically see what the chronicler wanted to say to the people of his day, and therefore what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through this book. Now, this David section doesn't start with David. It starts with his predecessor, Saul. We can take the next slide. Uh, the chronicler, uh, okay, that's the one I talked to you about just now, and we go to the next one. Okay, All right. The chronicler assumes that we already know that Saul was the first king of Israel. 
the predecessor of David. Now look at 935. 935-44. You see that finishes off the genealogical section with Saul's family genealogy. Now keep your finger right there, 935, right, and you turn back with me to chapter 8, verse 29 to 39. Now, just run your eye down, 935 to 44, and compare it to 829 to 39. What do you notice? Yeah, it's the same, isn't it? It's a virtual repeat. All the stuff from 935 to the end of the chapter, actually he's already just told us in the one chapter ago, and now he's telling us again. Why? Well, in the Bible, repetition is usually for emphasis. When something's repeated, it's like it's being underlined, put in bold, you know, because uh, uh, they don't have the typeface line those days. Right? Uh, so Chronicle doesn't, he wants us to look at this, hey, look at this one, look at this carefully. Right? Don't just skim past it. And now, when we look at it more carefully, you look at 9.35, the end of chapter 9. You see what the chronicle is doing here. He is tracing part of Saul's ancestry down to verse 39. Right? You see Saul's name down in the middle of verse 39? All, right? All that before that is his ancestors. And then he keeps tracing down not all of Saul's descendants, but a line of them to what is then the present time. Right? If you look at it carefully, you see that most of the men in the line fathered a number of sons, but only one son is chosen by the chronicler uh, to be traced to the next generation. Then you go to the next generation, and you choose one and trace along. And that line in verse 39 goes through Jonathan. We know that Saul wanted Jonathan to be his successor as king. And so a line is traced through Jonathan, through only one son in each generation, down to the day of the chronicler. You see what's happening? The chronicler is showing us what might have been. This could have been the alternative list of Israel's kings if this was God's plan and Saul had been faithful. But it wasn't. It looks it looks a bit like a genealogy of kings, but it isn't. It's not to be. None of those men were the kings of Israel. For unlike the genealogy of David, which would eventually lead to the Messiah, the genealogy of Saul would end in nothing much. And that's what we'll see in the next section. The rest of today's passage is structured to contrast Saul and David. Right, first, the writer tells us about the fall of Saul as king in chapter 10, verse 1 to 7. Then he tells a story that speaks of Saul's disgrace in verse 8 to 12. And then he tells the reasons for Saul's fall in verses 13 to 14. Then in the next chapter, by contrast, he tells us of the rise of David as king in verses 1 to 3. The greatness of David, a story that shows the greatness of David in verses 4 to 8, and then he tells the reason for David's greatness in verse 9. It's set up as a contrast. So let's look at 
what he tells us before we try to work out why he's telling us this and in this way. We read of the fall of Saul as king at the beginning of chapter 10. And it marks the beginning of the narrative part of Chronicles. Now, like many movies, the narrative part of Chronicles opens in a battle scene. And it's the Philistines, Israel's enemies who also lived in the land, versus Israel. And Israel is led by King Saul. They are fighting it out on Mount Gilboa. Next slide. Towards the north part of the Promised Land. Now you see in the red, uh, the red tag there on Google Maps. Right? And there's, there's a picture of, of, uh, from, from, of, from Mount Gilboa. Right? In this battle, verse 1, Israel is losing to the Philistines. The Israelite warriors are running away. They are being slaughtered. The Philistines press in on Saul and his sons who are fleeing. They kill three of Saul's sons in verse 2, including Jonathan. And Saul himself is wounded by an archer's arrow. He knows he can't escape. But he also knows that if he's caught, he'll be tortured by the Philistines before they actually kill him. And so he says to his armor bearer in verse 4, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and mistreat me. Now the armor bearer is terrified. And he rightly refuses to do it. And so what does Saul do? Saul decides to commit suicide. He takes his own sword and he falls on it and dies. And when the armor bearer sees that Saul is dead, he falls on his sword as well. And thus the chronicler says in verse 6, Saul died, he and his three sons, and all his house together. And when the Israelites who live down in the valley from Mount Gilboa realize that their army is defeated, their king and uh, his sons are dead, they know they are defenseless against the Philistines. And so in verse 7, they abandon their towns, they flee, and the Philistines come in and occupy them. Remember, Israel is meant to be taking over the promised land. But now the opposite is happening. Saul falls, and his people fall with him. His sons, his armor-bearer, his army, his people. All affected by the fall of the leader. Now, there are many leaders here among us today. Now, some lead formally, like growth group leaders. Some informally, like parents. If you are a leader among God's people, pay close attention to your life and to the teaching of the Scriptures. If you fall, you don't just affect yourself. You stumble others as well. But it's not just the recognized leaders among us. All of us affect others, don't we? All of us have an influence. Whoever we are, we have the potential not only to fall ourselves, but to take others with us. Be careful, not just for your own sake, for the sake of your children, your growth group, your friends. The next thing we are told here 
is how Saul is disgraced. Uh, we see in verse 8 that the Philistines come to strip the slain, get whatever goodies they get and can get from the, uh, the bodies of the fallen Israelite soldiers. And as they plunder the dead, ah, they find the body of Saul and his sons on Mount Gilboa. They strip Saul's body of his expensive armor. They cut off his head as a trophy. And in verse 9, they send messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their idols and to the people. Notice here how the writer is still throwing a bit of shade on the Philistine religion as he does it. You know? Idols are not like Yahweh who knows everything. Someone's got to go and tell them the good news. But anyway, they put the armor in the temple of their gods and they take Saul's head and put it on display at the temple of one of their gods, Dagon. And so, in his death, Saul becomes a trophy for his enemies. It adorns the house of their false god, where they can gloat over their victory and think that their god has defeated Yahweh. Saul is disgraced and dishonored even in death. But not only that, his disgrace brings reproach on the name of Yahweh. If you're a leader among God's people, watch your life, watch the teaching closely. If you stumble, you bring disgrace on the name of the Lord. Pastors and church leaders sit and the world gloats. But it's not just the formal leaders. All of us bear the name of Christ. People look to us, like it or not, as representatives of Christ. If we fall, we bring disgrace to the name of the Lord. Right, there's one mitigating factor in Saul's disgrace, one thing that makes it a little bit less terrible. And that is the valor of the people of a place called Jabesh Gilead. Uh, Jabesh Gilead uh, is round about the same latitude as uh, Mount Gilboa. If you see the pic here, there's Gilboa, there's Jabesh Gilead, but it's on the other side of the Jordan River. So Jabesh Gilead is the red dot up there, and Mount Gilboa is on the, the blue one on the other side there. All right? So the other side of the Jordan River, they've got to go down. Uh, uh, um, um, we know back from 1 Samuel. When Saul was being a good king, he had actually rescued the people of Jabesh Gilead from the Philistines. Uh, Philistines had attacked them. Saul rallied the Israelites to come to their defense, uh, and he defeated the Philistines. And so now, when they hear about what the Philistines did to Saul, their valiant men arise in verse 13. They find the body of Saul and his sons. 1 Samuel tells us where. Chronicles doesn't tell us. And they bring them back to Jabesh. They bury their bones, in verse 12, under the oak in Jabesh, and they fast for seven days in respectful mourning for the fallen king and his princes. Just by the way, uh, even if a leader falls, you can still appreciate or be thankful for the things that he or she did before they fell. It doesn't make up for what they've done, doesn't excuse it, doesn't mean that God will not deal with them ever so severely, but it does mean that the good things that they did before don't stop being good things. They were still good, can still be appreciated, 
even though we can no longer accept their ministry. Saul's disgrace was mitigated by the grateful valor of the men of Jabesh Gilead. The last thing the chronicler tells us about Saul is the reason for his fall. Look with me at verse 13. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and he also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Uh, the details of what he failed to do and failed, failed to keep God's commands, again, in Samuel. If you're curious, go and read about them there. Chronicler, not interested in the details. He just reminds us of two things. The first is the main one. He broke faith. Notice he mentions it twice. He died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with God. The word translated breach of faith or broke faith means disloyalty, infidelity, unfaithfulness. It's the word for adultery when there's unfaithfulness in marriage. Saul was entrusted with the kingship by God, but in the end, he failed to keep trusting God. He failed to keep his commandments. He became unfaithful. May that not be said of any one of us here today, my friends. May we not be unfaithful in our relationship with God. Let us be loyal to Him who called us, not turning aside. Let's keep trusting Him and show that trust by obedience to His Word, even when it's not seemingly to our advantage to do so. The second thing the chronicler reminds us compounds the guilt, right? He consulted a medium instead of seeking guidance from God. That's something that all God's people were forbidden from doing. Uh, Saul should have kept faith with God. He, he should have genuinely repented from his previous sin and sought the Lord. But because of his unfaithfulness, God stopped speaking to him. And in desperation, Saul compounded his guilt by consulting this medium. By the way, do I need to remind you don't go to mediums and fortune tellers. Right? Sometimes it can be tempting. Lah. God doesn't tell you what you want to know. But God tells you everything you need to know for life and godliness. What he doesn't tell you, you don't need to know. Trust him with that. He's very unlikely to tell you who you're going to marry if you're single. Or if you'll get better from the illness that you have. Or what number will win the four digits? Right? But as you read his word, he will tell you how to be saved. He will tell you how to live a godly life. He will tell you what you need to change in the next step of becoming more like Christ in your character. Prayerfully seek his guidance. Read the Bible. Ask him to show you how to live his way. Don't ever go to mediums and fortune tellers. Saul was unfaithful to God. Therefore, the chronicler said, in verse 14, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. In the end, the fall of Saul was God's judgment and he was his own tragic executioner. Isn't that sad? Oh, from the sad news, 
we turn to the good news. Because in the next section, we read of the rise of David as king. Again, the chronicler skips over a whole lot of stuff here. Right? From Samuel, we know David became king over Judah, down south first. There's a civil war, all kinds of things. But the end of the story, after seven and a half years, the whole country, north and south, agrees that David should be king. And that's where the chronicler picks it up, in chapter 11, verse 1. Then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron. 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 It's coming up on the next map. Uh, you see, it is just a little bit south of Jerusalem. Right? So they, 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 they gather there. And that's where David's base was. And notice what they say to David in verse 1. Behold, we are your bone and flesh. Uh, back in the book of Deuteronomy, God had told Israel that their future king must be one of them. Uh, and it's not just Judah that's related to David. You go back one generation, and they all come from Jacob or Israel. David is their flesh and blood. Right? He fits the criteria. Secondly, He's already shown himself to be the leader. Uh, they continue in verse 2. In times past, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. The words led out and brought in Israel, they're the kind of use, words you might use of a shepherd with their sheep. But David was the, the shepherd of Israel. He, many years he led Israel on their military campaigns. He was the leader who saved them over and over again from their enemies, gave them victory over the Philistines, even in Saul's time. David was leading. And thirdly, God had indeed promised that David would be king. Again, back in 1 Samuel, many years before, the prophet Samuel had secretly anointed David as king in obedience to God. The Spirit of God had left Saul and gone to David. Uh, he was God's choice as a true king. And so they describe God's promise to David in the words of verse 10, where they say, or verse 2, where they say, You shall be shepherd of my people, Israel. You shall be prince over my people, Israel. So David is qualified to be king. He has shown himself to be their leader. He has God's promises. Of course Israel should come under him. It's a no-brainer. And so in verse 3, all the elders of Israel come to the king at Hebron. David makes a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. They anoint David king over Israel according to the word of God, Lord, by Samuel. So that bit was about the rise of David, contrasting with the fall of Saul. Well, the next thing is about the greatness of David, contrasting with the disgrace of Saul. And here we see David and all Israel going up to Jerusalem. Right? It was called Jebus at the time, uh, in verse 4, because the people there were called Jebusites. They were another group of Israel's enemies in the land. And they were pretty confident that they would be safe from David's attack. They said in verse 5, you will not come in here. Right? There's a stronghold. It's, you know, built, there's, there's uh, slopes on the sides. Uh, they're, pretty, they're, pretty, they're pretty sure. But they're wrong. Again, there's more to the story in, in 2 Samuel. Chronicler doesn't want to distract us from the main point. And the main point is, despite their boast, David defeats the Jebusites. And look what it says in verse 5. Nevertheless, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the city of David. Remember, when Saul was disgraced, Israel lost territory to the Philistines. Now that David is becoming great, Israel is gaining territory from the Jebusites. 
Uh, David has just united Israel. And so the job of the new army chief of the United Israelite Army is open. Right? And in the battle, David offers the job of being in charge to whoever strikes the first Jebusite. Maybe, maybe he didn't want to automatically give it to Joab, right? who had led his southern army. Uh, we know from Samuel that he's upset with him because he double-crossed and murdered his rival Abner, who was from the northern army. But whatever reason, Chronicle doesn't get into this. He says, he, he just reports David saying in verse 6, whoever strikes the Jebusites first shall be the chief and commander. And guess who gets it? <laughs> Joab, son of Zeruiah, went up first. So he became chief. Yep, he became chief. Again, Saul goes down, men go down with him. David comes up, his men come up with him. Uh, David not only defeats the Jebusites, but he makes this newly conquered place his base. Verse 7, it says that he lived in the stronghold and therefore it was called the city of David. Right, the city of David. Now, this city of David is not to be confused with Bethlehem in the Christmas story, which is also called the city of David for other reasons. Right? This city of David here is part of what we know as Jerusalem. When you say city of David, nowadays when we say city, uh, we think of you know, Kuala Lumpur, right? or Shanghai, or New York, right? big, big cities like that. Right? Uh, uh, no. Uh, think about KL about 1900, on the next slide. Okay. Uh, you've, got a, you've got a... What have you got there? <laughs> yeah. Got a church on the side, a little there. Uh, maybe it's maybe it got cut. Are you Saint Mary's got cut? Okay, never mind. Uh, but you got the club, and you got a building there, and you know maybe a few shops at the back, uh, and that's about it, really. Uh, very smaller compared. You think about Clang Valley now, right? Uh, today, the city of David is an archaeological site. If you go to Jerusalem, you can go there. Uh, it's a tourist attraction. It's very small compared to Jerusalem. And now, or even at the time of Christ, but, but that was Jerusalem at the time of Christ. On the next slide, actually, we can see uh, the impression, right? The first one, top left-hand corner, that's city of David, David's time. Uh, and then by the time you, you go further up, the top, that site you see there, is going to be the Temple Mount, going to come up later on at the top, just above it there, right? And then now, uh, oh, sorry. Uh, and then later on, it's here, and then this is the current, current date now, lah. That's what's left of that city. That bit there was that city of David uh, over there. Okay? Um, okay, back to the Bible. Uh, under David, the city is built up. Uh, it's repaired. Uh, in verse 8, he builds a city uh, from the millow or the terraces uh, in that circuit. Uh, Joab repairs the city uh, and it gets built up. Lah. So uh, you wouldn't Guess at this stage, but God's got plans for this city. Right? This little city is going to grow this larger city uh, where Solomon will build a temple, where David's descendants would reign, uh, where Jesus would die and rise again. Uh, God would later use this city to symbolize for us the Jerusalem that is above, where all his people are gathered, and to symbolize the new creation, which he would call the new Jerusalem, where we will dwell with him forever. Right? So David's greatness is shown here, as he not only conquers the city, but he builds it up. And the reason for David's greatness? Well, David's greatness 
Saul had gone down. David come up. Why? Verse 9. David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. Right? The Lord of hosts means the Lord of armies, the Almighty God. Right? God was the real power behind his promised king. It's a little bit asymmetrical. For Saul fell because of his unfaithfulness. David came up because of God's favor. David became greater and greater because God was with him. Okay, now, having understood what the Chronicle is saying in this passage, we need to ask, why is he writing like this? Why is he telling us this information in this way when he could have saved himself all the trouble and said, please go and read Samuel? Right? <laughs> all the information's there. Well, the clue to the intention of the Chronicler is in what he chooses and how he arranges it. Remember we saw last week the Chronicler is writing in about 450 B.C., God's people had returned from exile, but things were not great. Far from being the wonderful kingdom of God the prophets were looking forward to, God's people were actually really struggling. And the chronicler was writing to encourage God's people in that struggle. Remember the structure of the passage? Coming up again. Saul rejected by God, executed by him. But... That's not the end of God's plans and purpose for Israel. God had promised that David would be king. And that's exactly what happens. And so the fall of Saul and the rise of David are mirrored in the way he organizes the material in the passage. That last half of the last verse of chapter 10 is the pivot verse on which the, the passage turns. Therefore the Lord put him to death, Saul, and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. You see, God's promise to Israel continued despite the fall and disgrace of Saul. God's promise continued. Now, remember the reason for Saul's fall? He had, in verse 13 of chapter 10, and the writer uses the word twice, broken faith. Never mind about the details. The bottom line is that he had broken faith. That is why he ended up the way he did. Have we seen this phrase before in Chronicles? Yes, we have. Keep your finger in the passage we're looking at. Go back to chapter 5, verse 25. Chapter 5, verse 25. Here the Chronicler is talking about the half-tribe of Manasseh. And in verse 5, in verse 25, he says, They broke faith with the God of their fathers and hoard after the gods of the people of the land, whom the Lord had destroyed before them. So, the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, the spirit of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he took them into exile. Right? This is a group. Why did they go into exile? Because they had broken faith. Or you go to chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, if... Chapter 5 was talking about one of the northern tribes. Chapter 9, verse 1, speaks about the south, Judah. Israel recorded in genealogies, is written in the book of the kings of Israel. Judah was taken into exile in Babylon. Why? Because of their breach of faith. You see that? You see that the chronicler is saying, 
what happened to Saul is just like what happened to Israel. They broke faith with God. They turned to other gods. They came under his judgment. Saul was put to death. Judah was sent into exile. Ah, but we see on the other side of Saul's tragic death came David's glorious rise. Because God's promises continue despite people breaking faith and getting punished for it. God's promises continue despite people breaking faith and getting punished for it. And so after the death of Saul, so tragic, God did something that meant Israel was in an even better position than they were before. He raised up a better king who was an Israelite, who led his people, whom God had promised. Far better the king than Saul ever was. What an encouragement that would have been for the people of the Chronicler's Day. They could have, they could have hope. Their ancestors, the nation of Israel, they had broken faith. But hope remained for God's people, despite of God's judgment. And the prophets had promised that God would do something even better than before. And God's promises continue, despite people breaking faith and getting punished for it. And so they could look forward to see what is God going to do next? If David, great King David, was God's answer to the terrible fall of Saul and his breach of faith, what would be God's answer to the even more terrible exile for Israel's breach of faith? We know the answer didn't come right away, but when it came, it was big, real big. And it was good, real good. During the exile, God had promised a future king through the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, in words that echo God's promise to David, we read this in Ezekiel 34. He says, I will set over them, God's people, one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. And in Mark chapter 6, Jesus looked upon his people and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he fed them in the wilderness. For Jesus is that true king, the better David, great David's greatest son, the ultimate answer to the problem of leadership among God's people. He was the king from David's line who, who, like David, was secretly anointed first, who became greater and greater because the Lord was with him, who was powerfully declared king by God through the Holy Spirit, through his resurrection from the dead, who would be the, the, the true king who would lead his people forever. The main application for the people in the chronicler's day was hope. Hope that would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. But what about us? What's the main application for us? Well, once again, we can have hope. Because it's not just Saul who broke faith. It's not just Israel who broke faith. 
humankind has broken faith. We were created very good, but we were unfaithful to God. Back in the garden, instead of trusting God and obeying His commands, we mistrusted Him and disobeyed. In our ancestor Adam, we chose to sin against Him. And as a human race, we fell. And the results of the fall of humanity are still being played out. Saul brought judgment upon himself and all who followed him. Adam brought judgment on himself and all who followed him. That's us. We read about that in our New Testament reading. Started with death and the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. It's working out now in the struggles of this world. And will culminate on the day of judgment in the, day, in the lake of fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. That is the tragic, natural end of humanity. Yet mercifully, God's plan remains and He still fulfills His promises. And because of God's great love, Jesus came, lived that perfect life, died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins so that we don't have to face that eternal judgment of hell. And instead we can be with Him in glory rose from the dead to show that He really is this King that God has promised. And so even as the judgment of humankind is working out, God's answer to that judgment is working out as well as the gospel is going out to the nations. Where is judgment? On the other side of that comes up salvation. Saul fell. He and his people were judged. But God saved His people in David. Adam fell. And the whole world will be judged in the final judgment. But on the other hand, God will save His people and bring them to the new creation with Jesus. Salvation is on the other side of judgment because God's promises continue despite people breaking faith and getting punished for it. So if you're a believer here today, take heart. Christ has been anointed as King. We are His people. People say we are on the wrong side of history because we don't follow either the so-called progressive agenda, which seems to be winning in some circles, or the religious agenda, which seems to be working in others. That is because their view of history is too narrow. King Jesus is building his city, the new Jerusalem. We are on his side, the side of the glorious king. We can have hope, and not just hope, wild optimism in the big picture. Like Adam, like Saul, there's fallenness. But Jesus, like David, is coming up. And he and his people will reign forever. But if you're not yet with Jesus, then can I urge you to switch sides before it's too late? You don't want to be like those people that went down with Saul. And the beauty is you don't have to be. Jesus invites you to join him today. Like Israel came to David at Hebron, you can come to Jesus. He's fit to be your king. He's your flesh and blood like you. Even though he is God, he shares your humanity. He's done a whole lot of leading for you, even without you knowing it. He came to the cross and died. He did everything that he needs to do in order for you to be saved forever if you turn to him. And he really is the king that God has promised. It's a no-brainer 
Of course, Jesus should be your king. So please come to him today. We've seen today that God's promises continue despite of people breaking faith and getting punished for it. And while that is true at the big level we've talked about, actually it's true at every level. People break faith. We've all seen people who we thought would love and follow Jesus to the end turn away from him and never return. And they will face his eternal judgment. It's tragic. But God's plans endure. Churches and denominations break faith. Churches turn away from preaching the gospel and find another gospel to preach. Uh, in some parts of the world, even the original Anglican denomination has become apostate. In the US, in Canada, New Zealand, Brazil, Anglican denomination changed its canons to allow same-sex marriage in direct disobedience to the word of God. And friends, that is the tip of the iceberg, the crowning disgrace over a multitude of sins and blatant unbelief. I'm not talking about any particular individual. I'm talking about churches and dioceses and provinces who have broken faith. And in our province, we've rightly said we're impaired communion with them. We don't see them as partners in the gospel. They cannot share communion with us. They've, they've left the faith. God will punish and remove those churches and denominations. But his plan for the gospel to go out, <laughs> that will continue. I'm so thankful to see faithful believers from those places leaving behind their buildings, bank accounts, and even pensions to start new Anglican churches and dioceses and provinces that will seek to be faithful. We've got someone from one of those churches here today. And even if they didn't do that, the gospel would still go out. It's just that Anglicans would never pardon it. They'd leave it to the Baptists. But God's promise continues, despite of people breaking faith and getting punished for it. The fact that God's promises continue, despite people breaking faith and getting punished for it, doesn't mean the breaking of faith any less tragic for the individual, the church, or the denomination. God's plans will always endure. His kingdom will come, but please keep on the right side. Saul started well, but ended tragically. Friends, it's not enough to start well. We need to end well as well. Don't break faith. Don't end up being part of a horrible story of judgment. If you do, God is still in control. His plans and purposes will go on without you. But you'll miss out on being part of his wonderful future. Keep trusting Jesus and therefore obeying him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus was always faithful. Thank you that we are in him and with him and can enjoy the fruits of his faithfulness. Please help us to keep trusting you and therefore obeying you. May we continue 
to be faithful in him. And we ask this in his name. Amen.